Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. I'm really excited about this episode. It features a group discussion on an exciting new project that reappraises the remains found at the Passage Tomb Complex of Karakil in County Sligo. Part of the discussion focuses on mortuary practice, essentially the way that the dead were treated. I just wanted to give you an advance warning that the discussion is a little bit graphic in parts, so please do bear that in mind if you have young children around. It's probably not the best soundtrack to play while you're having your dinner. That said, there are some incredible insights in here, so I really hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. The first detailed investigation of the human remains from the Karakil Passage Tomb Complex since their excavation in 1911 has revealed several new and important insights into life, death and mortuary practice in Neolithic Ireland. This project was carried out by Thomas Cador, Lara Cassidy, Johnny Gieber, Robert Henzi, Porrick Meehan and Sam Moore in a multidisciplinary project that combined archaeology, osteo-archaeological examination of human remains, DNA analysis and isotopic analysis to gain new insights into Neolithic Island. With me today to discuss the project, we have Lara Casti, Porrick Meehan, Robert Henty and Thomas Cador. You're all very welcome. Thanks very much for joining me. Cheers. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we might begin um, with yourself, Robert. If you could tell us a little bit about Karakil and its context, what is the site and where can you find it? So Karakil is a site in County Sligo in the northwest of Ireland. Um, there's a series of monuments there that are roughly classed as passage tombs or probable passage tombs. As many of them are large piles of stones called cairns. Uh, some are open so we know what's inside and we can maybe more definitively say that they're passage tombs or the kind of finds they have. Others are unopened uh, or it's not clear what's underneath those cairns so it can be difficult to tell. So passage tombs are a prominent uh, type of monument in Neolithic Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, people would be familiar with Newgrange uh, or maybe some of the more uh, famous passage tombs across Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but the landscape itself is quite extraordinary. Um, people in this room who've maybe visited quite a few passage tombs mm -hmm. will know that it's very difficult to find somewhere as dramatic and as spectacular yeah. Uh, as Karakil. It's this, That's uh, very true. It's beautiful sites. It really is. Limestone yeah. landscape. Now, you know, a lot of sort of bog covering, but you need to imagine in the Neolithic, mm -hmm. uh, possibly, you know, um, this kind of bright uh, uh, stone, maybe somewhat similar to the Burren, mm -hmm. um, and these uh, spectacular monuments, sheer limestone escarpments, mm -hmm. cliffs. Um, and monuments that could be seen for many, many miles around. Mm -hmm. So there's two key areas within Karakil. One is Karakil townland, mm -hmm. and it was there um, that excavations took place over 100 years ago, mm -hmm. and that sort of has given its name to the complex. And then there's another hill, actually the highest point in the complex, called Keshkoran, mm -hmm. which has a number of passage tombs there, and then a number of monuments between those two areas mm -hmm. uh, and around Loch Arrow. Um, so it's it's an extraordinary place and um, has um, 
maybe somewhat understated but very uh, sort of special role in the history of Irish archaeology too. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. It, it's it, it's such a complex a prehistoric complex that it, it's um, not only beautifully set but it's incredibly interesting. And um, I suppose, um, Porrick, the the tombs. We know that they were first investigated in around about uh, 1911 by McAllister. He was the Professor of Celtic Archaeology, as it was known then, at University College Dublin. Mm. The practice of archaeology has changed quite a lot since 1911, uh, in some ways. I mean, <laughs> in some ways, it, it, it's still a manual labour and such. Um, but how did McAllister go about excavating the sites, and what did he find? Well, McAllister didn't excavate the sites alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, McAllister was part of a three-man team. Okay. Uh, and we, at one stage, when we looked at this in the early days, questioned mm-hmm. whether he was even the lead archaeologist on the job. Okay. Uh, Robert Lloyd Prager, uh, who was an eminent botanist mm-hmm. and a, a huge figure uh, mm-hmm. in Irish research at the time. And as you say, it's very different then. Yes. It was possible to skip from being a botanist to being an archaeologist in the bat <laughs> of an eye then, sadly. have <laughs> changed. Um, and uh, Edmund Clarence Armstrong of mm-hmm. the National Museum of Ireland was another, was a third member. And on that first day in April, uh, the 13th of April uh, in 1911, another man came with them who was going to be a, a huge figure and a huge amount of consequence for the work that we ended mm-hmm. up doing. Uh, and that was the father of Arms, of, of McAllister, who was Alexander, Professor Alexander McAllister, a man in his 60s, okay. uh, who was uh, at the time held the chair of um, anatomy in nice. Cambridge University. So these were the creme de la creme. They were a very mm-hmm. special group Mm-hmm. With with regard to you know research and it, it was a heavyweight group, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yes they excavated over three seasons that year, mm-hmm. um, uh, and ultimately excavating eight of what is about sixteen monuments in the small cluster uh, that sit above Lagarro at Carrowkeel. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. And, and what was it that they found when they when they opened the well, they were a little disappointed. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, you can sense the tone. Prager wrote yeah. a, a book called The Way That I Went about yes. his, uh, his, his uh, botanic adventures in mm-hmm. Ireland, Clare Island survey and so on. Mm-hmm. But he recorded that all we found were mere trinkets right. uh, in, in, when they opened up. His, you know, it's very apparent the excitement with which uh, they entered the monuments. Mm-hmm. For example, mm-hmm. they, the, 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 the first day... On the 14th, I think it is, mm-hmm. uh, they excavate Kirinji. They open it up for the first time. These are incredibly well preserved. I think there's one other point yeah. that there are few uh, complexes of this character in Europe that are as well preserved and particularly were when they approached them in Karaoke. Okay. And they opened up and they entered, and he talked about carrying a candle in. Yes. And, uh, and, and lighting. I mean, this was a time of battery-powered lights and cameras, mm-hmm. but they were bringing in a candle, and they opened up, and then they got so excited that they continued into the night mm-hmm. to excavate the next monument. So, uh, yeah, what did they find? Bones, mm-hmm. cremated bones, uh, uncremated bones, uh, objects typical of the Irish passage tomb tradition that, that, mm-hmm. uh, that accompany the bones, antler pins, stone balls. Um, and lots of these things that they mightn't have seen them as being terribly significant, but to us they're they're a treasure trove of information. Do you think that they were um, 
looking at you know some of the discoveries that have been happening in previous decades in places like Egypt, and they were hoping for. Well, McAllister, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. McAllister was fresh yeah. from Palestine. He'd excavated ah, okay. the Tel Gezer yeah. and just finished that in 1909, uh-huh. uh, where he had moved you know a whole city two meters to the right. <laughs> um, so you know, yeah, uh, presumably they would have, might have expected Bronze Age material. They were of the expectation that these were Bronze Age monuments. Oh right. So gold. Okay. Mm-hmm. Would have been ah, li- likely okay. to have occurred. Okay. Um, this was at the time of the narrative. You know, you're just seeing coffee have been written his, his paper saying that the Newgrange was what? What age was Newgrange that time? It was about something like four hundred BC. Yes. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, it uh, moving on to yourself. Tom, uh, it's it's somewhat unusual in some ways to to together so many different skill sets and and, and have such a multidisciplinary approach uh, looking at a site that was previously excavated in a way that you know it, it's looking back over um, older material but could you tell us a little bit about the background to the project perhaps and you know what were you trying to discover what what was the the key aims where did the project come out of well it's it's an interesting one and and, and I think the fact that we could pull together so many different uh, approaches and people with with backgrounds in yeah. backgrounds in, in and specialisms in those those areas including obviously a very strong specialism in in the the prehistoric archaeology of northwest Ireland was because we were all ready to go yes. already uh, that all of us had been working on related projects previously. Okay. Robert and Porik have been involved in a publication to mark the centenary of the excavation mm-hmm. in the Proceedings of the Royal Irish Academy that just came mm-hmm. out um, a year or so before we officially started this project that, that we're discussing today. So mm-hmm. th- that that paper they had been working on for a number of years. So so mm-hmm. they were obviously and being being based in the northwest of Ireland, they were obviously interested. You can't, I guess, live in, in the vicinity and, and not be interested in Karakil because yes. it's such a striking present. Um, Lara was working on her PhD in, mm. in, in Trinity College and also already um, interested in finding useful samples to do ancient DNA analysis from, from prehistoric Ireland, in particular Neolithic Ireland. Mm. Myself, I was in Bristol at the time, again, looking for, for appropriate case studies, appropriate samples to work in particular with isotopes, we, we, we get back to that. Mm. And, and Johnny Geber had been involved in the fringes again with, with, with Paul Ricks and, and, and Robert's previous project to, 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 and as I, I, and to, to take samples for radiocarbon dating on, on that. So he had been involved. And the other person, obviously, who is sadly not here today is, is Sam Moore, yes. who is um, at the moment writing up his, his doctorate, okay. his PhD thesis on the Karakil landscape. Yes. So, okay. so the fact that we were all already working on the on on Karo Kiel, uh, was obviously a, a really important element to to get the project off off the ground relatively smoothly, mm-hmm. I, I guess. Um, what what's interesting about the pro the the project also you said it's it's a little bit surprising that a hundred years after after excavations we, mm-hmm. we we go back and and sort of throw the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. That's something that's such a historical record. That the, the fact of the matter is actually this. Apart from the the techniques will, which we'll be talking about in terms of the challenges that they throw at us, mm-hmm. that people used in 1911 to excavate the tombs and to record and 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 archive. Apart from those techniques, the monuments might as well have been excavated a couple of years before we did the research because. Okay. They wrote up the report in 1912 with um, Alexander McAllister was already mentioned writing the bone report about three quarters of a page. 
Okay. And then the bones went into storage. Okay. And essentially nobody looked at them for the best part of the century. Wow. Partially because they sort of went missing. Oh, so okay. no, I don't think they formally went missing, but just nobody really kept track of them. Yeah. And nobody, after a while, McAllister died and it was forgotten where the bones were. Nobody had inquired. And it was really a, a kind of a, a chance discovery after that, that the place where, where, we, where they were found in Cambridge was flooded in the Duckworth Institute. Um, nice. That Alison Sheridan enc- uh, encountered the boxes that said Carrow Keel. And she then oh tipped God. off in, in the early mm-hmm. 2000s, tipped off the Irish archaeological community, Robert mm-hmm. and Porig among them, okay. um, that these bones existed. Yes. Because the National Museum didn't hold them, so nobody quite knew where, where they were. And this is why, so they were essentially sealed from, from, from research for the best part of a century. And that made it really exciting yeah. because we had access to essentially the entire collection. Uh, the entire assemblage of human remains that they excavated in 1911, they were almost untouched. It was only McAllister's relatively simple analysis of, of trying to get, he was primarily interested in getting a, a head count in, into the minimum number of individuals yeah. and maybe a little bit thinking about, uh, about stature and gender, yeah. but that was it. Um, so therefore nothing else had been done to the bones and that, that was really exciting for us and that's why we could bring people like Lara on board and, yeah. and, and Johnny could do intensive analysis because these were an untapped resource for research. That, that's an incredible discovery. I mean, it, it's, um, it, it, it's almost very um, fortunate in a way that they lay hidden for, for this length of time to just this point when we've got all of these techniques and skills and sure everybody <laughs> feels like that at this point at the perfect time <laughs> well that's to... true that's true yeah <laughs> that, that, that's very very true one of the interesting things about the project is that, you know you're all bringing your own particular lenses uh, and your own particular um experience to it and but what was it that enticed you all into it i, I think you know perhaps we're Robert and Porrick, it, it, it's a little bit more um, uh, straightforward in, in given the period and, and, and the place. Lara, what was it that enticed you in, into the project? Um, I suppose, well, my PhD uh, mm. itself was extremely broad. Uh, ancient genomics is an extremely new field. Mm-hmm. And I kind of uh, uh, came in uh, quite early on uh, with my supervisor, Dan Bradley. Mm-hmm. And originally... We were building up a big data set of genomes from Mesolithic uh, right up to early modern um, mm. Ireland. Um, and as we went forward, uh, we started to get more and more focused uh, on particular um, periods, uh, particularly the Neolithic, uh, okay. which is bookmarked uh, by two big migrations to the island. One mm. from the Mesolithic uh, mm. to Neolithic transition, one Neolithic to bronze. And mm. Thomas um, approached Dan um, uh, they had found the remains at the Duckworth. They were interested in ancient DNA analysis, and we mm. jumped on that opportunity to add um, another side to our um, our Neolithic set. Um, and really, from then on, kind of just got more and more into <laughs> Kiel um, as a site. Obviously, it's fascinating. Um, but I suppose the really important thing is, and why I suppose uh, my project. Um, has been good for Karakil so you can't just analyze the DNA in Karakil in isolation mm-hmm. uh, reference sets are everything putting it okay. in context is everything both temporal mm-hmm. context um, mm-hmm. and, and geographical context so we want lots of ancient genomes from Ireland and Europe if we want to answer uh, mm-hmm. questions um, about the individuals living in Karakil mm-hmm. um, 
So, yeah, I suppose um, that's sort of how I kind of came into it. Um, and, and like, you know, I, I suppose one of the, the remarkable things about this project that allowed such analysis was the, the preservation of, of the remains. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the there's challenges going forward in, in being able to find a, a good enough comparison, in, in a sense? It, definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, there's so many uh, different variables that go into DNA preservation. Uh-huh. Megaliths, especially in a kind of cold place like Ireland, are amazing. Yeah. They're like fridges, little time capsules. Mm-hmm. We can't extract DNA from cremated bone, okay. only unburnt remains. Uh-huh. Um, so that in itself is a huge problem, yeah. especially it, there's a possibility that individuals that were being cremated mm-hmm. potentially are ancestrally different to those being unburnt. We don't know why people pick the varial rituals they yeah, okay. chose. And that is one possibility that mm-hmm. we will never be able to really investigate. Okay. Um, there's some really important regions uh, like mm-hmm. northern France and Brittany, mm-hmm. uh, which are centres of, of passage to um, mm-hmm. architecture, uh, that the soils are, are quite bad. Um, mm, okay. And they're really, really important uh, points to have. Yeah. Um, so it might be difficult a, to have a straight comparison to the same level of detail with, with those sites. Than it would be. We can hope. <laughs> we can, yeah, there's always the possibility. And we can hope. And that's the exciting thing yeah. with um, ancient DNA. It's still so new. The possibilities <laughs> right now still, I think, aren't fully comprehensible. Um, and the technology is improving year upon year. Um I think Karakil, not just in terms of preservation, but it was an amazing site to include because of all the other work going on, mm-hmm. the dates, having tight chronology, having isotopes, um, mm-hmm. all of this, it it uh, gives context to our ancient DNA results too, and they all feed off each other. So Brilliant. the more sites we have that are really well researched, the, the better, the better. Picture yeah. is going to come out of yeah. Um, yeah, if I could just say as well that, it, I mean, it's quite rare to come across a, a, an intact Neolithic assemblage. Yes, and, um, absolutely. And when um, Johnny Geber looked at the assemblage, he, mm. he said, it's, it's excellent, it's so well preserved. And that, mm. that's, that's also fantastic. unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, so we realised, you, you know, Sam Moore and myself on the initial visit in 2013, mm-hmm. that there was incredible potential here. Mm-hmm. Um, so potential in all departments, so as regards... Uh, dates, you know, so previously there'd been a project at, at Caramore and mm-hmm. we had found something perhaps close to a backstop for the Irish Passage Tomb tradition. Mm-hmm. And after many, many years of study, you know, mm-hmm. and a national context, there was still a lot of uncertainty around mm-hmm. passage tombs, their dates, you know, yes. was there a developmental mm-hmm. sequence, was it east, west, west, east, and so on. Uh-huh. So Caramore had helped, but Caracil was absolutely essential to, yeah. to fill in that picture, you know. So mm-hmm. much work done in the in the Boyne Valley, of course. Yeah. Um, and then in all other areas, you know, the project is called Human Population Dynamics at Caracil. So we had mm-hmm. an opportunity to find out about illness, mm-hmm. you know, about types of burial traditions, mm-hmm. about the rituals that were involved. Um, and then all of these other fantastic uh, new scientific te- techniques that were now available mm-hmm. around various isotope uh, analyses and an ADNA. So, so it, uh, it really was a recognition that we have something extremely special and extremely mm-hmm. rare here. That's, that's brilliant. And that kind of that almost chance find in a sense, mm-hmm. I think is it's incredible. You know, it, it, it really, really is. Um, so I suppose, you know, it, it, Looking at um, the the human remains, which, which 
form so much of the focus of, of the project. Um, could you speak a little bit about what different techniques that you use to analyse the human remains um, and what did that kind of analysis reveal, if anything, about who was buried in these tombs and how they were treated in death? Uh, perhaps we, Thomas, if, if you'd like to. Yeah, I, I, I'll make a start at this and hopefully the others can chip in. Uh, sadly, Johnny, who's done all the work on this, really can't be here today. Um, but as, as I mentioned, Johnny had worked on, on, on some of the samples from Karakil that actually in, in Dublin uh, previously for uh, the project that Robert Porig and Sam had been involved in. Mm-hmm. There only only two samples, I think, that, that got dated mm-hmm. from a later mm-hmm. kind of uh, rescue excavation by the OPW in, okay. um, in, the, in the 1960s or so. But uh, So he had a bit of a background knowledge. Mm-hmm. He did. He didn't expect, as as Robert sort of hinted, what he would find when he opened those boxes in in the Duckworth in um, laboratory in Cambridge. Essentially, first of all, as Robert mentioned, the level of preservation was excellent. Being uh-huh. in the karstic limestone, that really helps. Wow. Okay. Um, for for bone preservation, uh, so that then allowed a completely different approach to the analysis. So he he could look in in, in quite fine detail. At, at the remains and what he found very quickly is also that a, a significant proportion of the assemblage was unburned, which sort mm. of is mentioned to some degree, comes through from the 1912 report, but they didn't quantify in the way we would do now. So yes. we didn't quite know. We knew there was an unburned element and the cremated element there, yes. but the, 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 that it was actually quite a balanced assemblage. And that's unusual. It was seen to be, I think we've changed the, the, the record a little bit or corrected it. It was seen to be unusual for Irish passage tombs. Yes. The, the perception until three, four years ago was still the passage tomb assemblages are dominated by cremations. Uh-huh. And and very clearly in Karakil that was not the case. There was a an almost even balance mm. between the cremated assemblage and the and, and the unburned assemblage. Okay. So that that was very important. Um mm. so so he could then actually look in great detail at the, in particular at, at the unburned remains and and there's more work to be done if 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 he would like to but he could reassess for starters the the minimum number of individuals represented mm-hmm. and compare that with McAllister senior's suggestions from a hundred years prior and McAllister wasn't that far off interestingly mm-hmm. so and and with the MNI the minimum number of individuals is literally the minimum number. But the number could be exponentially or quite significantly above that because the way that works is that you look at one element, yeah. one bone that you can identify that only occurs once, like yes. the right the right femur, the the, the large leg bone, or the right the right mandible, the jaw, or something that yeah. only we only have one of, yeah. and then you count all of those. Yes. So the one that occurs most often, that's the one you use, uh-huh. and then you quantify, and and that's how. So that doesn't mean that because of the nature of the assemblage, and we can talk more about it, that, despite the fact that they are unburned, they are disarticulated, so the bones are mixed and jumbled. Yes. Meaning okay. we don't have full skeletons placed in the tombs, but actually the positions of 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 parts of bodies, and they are mixed up with one another, probably over the over the the generations that the tombs were in use. But at least we nice. got a, a starting point. Okay. And the number is around forty. If you then if you quantify the cremated and the unburned together, so that's the minimum, okay. um, which is not far off. McAllister suggested something in the thirties, but again, he suggested it could be twice as much, and Chani wouldn't disagree with that. Yes, so, that's very so, interesting. And, and did McAllister record the um, the bones were how, how clear were his recordings of where the bones were when he 
ex found them, if you like. <coughs> do we have good records about how they were laid out? Was it a, a, a jumble? That, do, do we know that uh, category? Yeah, this project? Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, he describes uh, the opening of the monuments, and mm -hmm. Carroquil often, in, in a number of instances, has a cruciform layout. Yeah. They excavated... Uh, eight monuments, and okay. of those, seven yielded human bones. Uh -huh. And it, within those, there were sub-compartments. So mm -hmm. you, it's the, the, you know, if you knew, know Newgrange, you go in a passage, there's a centre compartment, and then in front of you there's a recess. To your left, there's a recess to your right. Now, that wasn't always the case. Some of them were individual. There were four yeah. of them in which they weren't subdivided. But of those, then, they would generally record where they had found okay. the bones. Okay. They... Uh, there are sill stones in Karakili. Yes. They block off the front part up to, you know, something like maybe 24 centimetres yes. in height. And behind that, it was fairly level. And okay. you might, you know, you, so you had basically that height and the floor covered. And sometimes, oh. but no, you remove some stones, there were these kind of bettles, these kind of yeah. flat stones they described. And underneath them, there was a jumble. Ah, and that okay, jumble okay. was a jumble of bone. They, for example, there are notes found in Cambridge with that are by Alexander McAllister. We deciphered oh, right. the fact that they were by them. And they, you see the scribbling and the little tiny notes that look like field notes that he's been making. And in one, he writes, apparent contemporaneity. Oh, in okay, other words, yeah. he was, he was yeah. interpreting that you were seeing cremation and inhumation in the same mix. However, mm -hmm. with the difficulty was that they didn't record stratification. Right. And, you know, we've argued in, over this at various times, but the question was, did they just basically, as you sometimes say, Robert, find things and, and take them yeah, out? Yeah, well, it was an open question, you know, and I remember mm -hmm. a kind of light bulb moment at one point, uh, mm -hmm. you know, gosh, did they actually excavate? And mm -hmm. we can't, I mean, there's very, you know, as we would understand it in a modern sense, record mm -hmm. stratigraphy, plot vines and so on. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly very good instances, even from Keshkorin in 1903, where... It was excellent excavation and sharp, and, uh, and you can still mm -hmm. go back to those records and, you know, retrace where objects would have been found and so on. Mm -hmm. We don't have that with McAllister's okay. excavation. So it's really sort of, you know, it's it's just on that borderline of the beginnings of modern Irish archaeology. Mm -hmm. you yeah. know, some yeah. things they did very well. You know, they produced mm. an excellent report that is still immensely valuable. You can yeah. read and read. You know, they drew the, the monuments extremely well, surveyed, mm -hmm. planned, a little bit schematic, but still incredibly useful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they had various specialists involved, so they did many, many things very well. Mm -hmm. But the, the excavation does seem to have taken place quite fast. Yeah. And okay. that could mm -hmm. be related to McAllister's previous um, experience <laughs> in Palestine. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, so it, 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 you know, you could call it rushed. Mm -hmm. you, know, okay. you could call it hurried. Okay. So there, there is a difficulty. The one benefit there is that there may still be intact stratigraphic um, layers within those chambers if somebody was to go back and excavate and that mm. you know could prove very useful in the future mm. that's very interesting and and to go back to the um the study of the remains themselves um uh, I, I suppose you know one of the things as you said that Johnny was looking at was the the minimum number of individuals and, and you know looking at things like gender Mm -hmm. with the adults with the children uh, what did uh, the genetics study uh, Lara uh, would you say uh, what were you particularly interested in, in looking at when you, you were examining the human remains um, well like Thomas said it was brilliant mm. that there was a lot of unburnt bone we uh -huh. can't get DNA from cremations yes so that was brilliant um, mm. and the preservation was spectacular yes I think those tombs act almost like fridges 
yeah. But um, so um, I mean, some of the simplest things you can do with DNA is molecular mm. sexing, and mm. our ratio actually matched up mm, really, perfect. really nicely uh, with Johnny's on a larger number of individuals. Um, and that's sort of like your very first thing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, a genome contains a huge amount of information. Yeah. I mean, every human is just a combination of their genome and their environment. So it contains all the instructions to make and maintain you. Yes. And all okay. the health and physical implications mm-hmm. that come along with that. Mm-hmm. Um, your genome is also a map of your ancestry and yeah. not just your recent ancestry. Yeah. The ancestry of, of, of everybody who came before yeah. you. Um, so... You can look at very recent things like kinship, mm-hmm. if anybody is uh, is related in the tomb. But you can also look at their more deeper origins uh, in over millennia. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a, that's really interesting to look at them through all of these lenses because quite often um, human remains on an archaeological site are, are looked at by an osteoarchaeologist, which can produce a tremendous amount of information. Mm-hmm. But adding this new mm-hmm. le- complexity to the information it, it is terrific and. I suppose one of the headline things about this particular project was what some of the osteoarchaeological information told us about how they treated the dead. Yeah. Um, would you like just, to speak a little? I, I start with this just before also just to, mm-hmm. to throw in the other two key contributions that mm-hmm. we could make because of, of the, the nature of the assemblage. And, okay. and f- from the start, we had planned the DNA sort of came on board because it was opportune in many ways uh-huh. it was a super assemblage for it Lara was 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 looking for samples and ready to work on it mm-hmm. um, but we had start, planned from the start also to do um, isotope work yeah. mm-hmm. so this is partially why, why Johnny came on board and so the, the plan was to do a full osteological assemb- uh, assessment of the assemblage yes. and Sam and Johnny would s- sample for, for isotope analysis and for dating so these two are really important also that you know the, 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 as other methods. So we did the osteological work, mm-hmm. the background work, obviously, uh, that, that in Sam, Robert and Paul Rick had done a lot on already on, on mm-hmm. the excavation and the monuments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so the osteological work, the, the isotopes, the DNA and the dates and all yeah. of these together mm-hmm. are it's really important to, to sort it in. And, and what was unexpected, so... We obviously, uh, so we didn't know what proportions of cremated and in young bo- unburned bone there would be, what proportions male, female, um, uh, subadults there would be. Mm-hmm. But uh, what was completely unexpected, and and Johnny discovered because of his very careful microscopic work, is that it seemed that the bones ha- showed signs of cut marks. That there was some evidence of 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 humans being. Uh, the human remains post mortem being processed by other people on purpose. Um, so, so essentially, some of the bones being being severed from other bones in mm-hmm. order to to um, either facilitate that this speed up the process of, of decomposition or make it more straightforward to bundle them, to carry them, to deposit them. But there was a process going on, a complex process going on. That's obviously mm-hmm. we are very familiar in prehistoric context with cremation, which is also a complex process. Mm-hmm. This is another body processing methodology that people at the same time, as it turned out, seem to have employed at Karakil, with some hints that have happened elsewhere as well. But this is the first time that we definitively say can say that this happened on purpose uh, at, at at a passage tomb complex like like that. Uh, yeah, it, it's. I think it's one of those times, isn't it, when you look back at the past and you go, whoop, <laughs> that, that is very different mm. um, to today. And it, it makes you think about, um, 
you know, dismemberment of bodies. It makes you think about who carried that out. Now, I imagine that people in in Neolithic Ireland would have been very used to um, butchery of animals, mm-hmm. if you like. Mm-hmm. But butchering your gran is is something a little bit different and a little bit out there. But by that rationale, I mean, we have undertakers today who embalm family members and, and things like that with the past. Do you think that there's... It's very hard to say, <laughs> obviously, but do you think that there's anything that it can tell us about belief or society or specialised roles maybe in this kind of uh, aspect of the treatment of the dead? Do you think that there's any questions to ask? I, maybe, maybe Robert can come in yeah. there in a minute as well because I think the whole of the passage tomb complexity t- suggests mm. that it must have been specialists. You know, if yes. you look at yeah. the solar alignment of, of Newgrange and mm. other monuments, mm-hmm. um, it's not a straightforward process. So mm-hmm. there must have been a level of specialisation at every at every aspect of this. Constructing even the large complex that Karakil is, yeah. constructing these monuments yes. requires, re- requires a huge amount of, of, of know-how and sophistication uh-huh. that you wouldn't expect, I guess anybody in a small scale scale farming community to possess so that, that it was definitely valued extremely extremely high mm-hmm. and possibly hinting at, at some form of, of specialization but I, I, I maybe Robert and Porig would like to would like to expand on on, on, on their views on this yeah, mm-hmm. I mean everybody would have have different opinions um, mm-hmm. uh, I would think that, that there there's absolutely no doubt there's specialization Mm-hmm. in Neolithic society yes and I think you can see that clearly in the art uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so much of the megalithic art people will be familiar with from Newgrange and out and so on mm-hmm. but elsewhere in the country too um, I think it's clear from the construction mm-hmm. um, but also um, and I, I know Johnny had a colleague in New Zealand who was a specialist in butchery methods mm-hmm. and he said the person who uh, undertook that work on the bones of Karakil mm-hmm. had immense knowledge. Okay. So that's not. Um, it wasn't done casually. It's not haphazard work, and you yeah. can actually see yeah. in, the, in the exact positions uh-huh. where these ninety-one cut marks are found mm-hmm. that that th- there is knowledge of what muscle groups are going to be met at what position that need to be right. cut through to get to another position to detach the bone at this point. Okay. Um, so it's 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 highly skilled, uh, yeah. specialized work, and you uh, ethnographically, you mm-hmm. know, you will see that that there's a, a tradition in a family in the same way that we would have had traditions in the recent past in Ireland and other places of, mm-hmm. of handing down knowledge and skills. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's so it's it's highly likely. Yeah. It, it's fascinating. Yeah. Now, one thing I say is that there are. It's it's the start of a conversation. This really, as yeah. opposed to the end of one, yeah. because some of the things <coughs> that we don't know are, for example, whether or not that was a prevalent practice. Yeah. It it because of the bones that were in particular marked, mm-hmm. we can't say if any more than I think one or perhaps two mm-hmm. individuals are treated in this particular way. It's mm-hmm. uh, Johnny makes the point that. Everyone could have been, but that the cut marks might not have gone so deep yeah. as to as as to okay. make that case. So there's kind of two extremists in the way that we we've looked at interpretation of that. Mm-hmm. One being that this is simply just another methodology to get down to bare bones to ac- accelerate the process of, of decay. Mm-hmm. The other is that these are performances. Mm-hmm. Cremation is a performance of a mm-hmm. particular character, mm-hmm. and the, the dismemberment of a body, if it's a public event or even not. Mm-hmm. It's a performance of some sort. So is that process the most important thing? 
Yeah. Okay. Or is it yes. simply the result is the most important thing? And that's yeah. that's that's part of the conversation we're going to have to have in the future. I, I just think it's fascinating because I suppose we know of ethnographic parallels with uh, with uh, explanation in terms of things like sky burials, for example, where people are left up in high prominent places and the birds take them away piece by piece. Mm. This is something a bit, bit different mm. and a bit more deliberate, and I think it's yeah. pretty fascinating. Yeah, one, one one more thing also is sadly we don't know either for the for the disarticulation and, and, and the dismemberment mm-hmm. or for the uh, cremation where where these practices took place. Mm. Yeah, okay. It's unlikely that the 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 Karakil hills themselves were inhabited by people okay. because of the Karsik limestone, the tin soils yeah. at the t- at the time. There's a settlement nearby from from a later period. So people probably had to make a journey to uh, mm-hmm. place their dead. Mm-hmm. So it's also not impossible that the, the processing happened elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you have a, a cremation or a, to, to use a, 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 a kind of a sloppy phrase, to, a chopped up person, yeah. it's yeah. easier to carry them than a car- mm-hmm. carrying the dead weight all, all the way up, up to carry. Yeah. I'm not saying this is entirely functional or practical, mm-hmm. no, but, no, no, uh, but, no, but clearly that there is an element to that, that we don't know where these different processes happened and they could oh, have yes. extended quite extensively across the landscape. They could have, been, they could have been processed in the place where they died mm-hmm. or moved somewhere else first and then processed there and then moved mm-hmm. to, the, to the tombs in Karakil. So we, we don't understand the entirety yeah. of that, that, that process. Yeah. There's a, isn't there a, even a further layer of, of questions when you start to think that if it is actually only one individual, then that individual has been distributed mm-hmm. in different monuments. <laughs> yeah. And Gabriel Cooney writes about now that he ventures that in fact that has happened. Yeah. So now we have to start thinking in, in in very different terms about. Well, we have that today. I mean, I, I remember um, working on a, a a site that I I won't mention for the OPW, <laughs> and there was uh, an American lady who had uh, cremated uh, the ashes of her husband who had died, and she was leaving her ashes in various monuments around the country. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I suppose, in a sense, yeah. we're still doing it. I mean, can I just point out one thing as well? Because I know for a lot of people that hear this for the first time, to see it is quite macabre. Mm. Yes. Know? And, yeah. and it's, it's yeah. dark imaginings, you know, yeah. crop up in the mind. And, mm. and just to say that when you do look sort of ethnographically at evidence, mm. you know, uh, variation in mortuary ritual is actually the norm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we yeah. have we have quite a homogenous situation in we, Ireland. We did. Put up yeah. to recently, it's changing now. But yeah. you know where burial is vast. Majority of people get buried, and only yeah. a few people get cremated. Mm-hmm. But you know, so there could have been all kinds of different social factors involved in well, what treatment. True. You know, you received or I would receive. Yeah. You know, and uh, it could depend on all kinds of things. You know, to, hugely you know, the I, way you lived your life, your rank in society. Mm-hmm. You know, your mm-hmm. your. Your, your your ancestry and so all kinds of things. I, I think cultural relativism really hits home, I think, the treatment of the dead. I, I know, like, I, I'm from uh, England originally and I'd never experienced a wake until, yeah. in that sense until yeah. I came to Ireland where you actually yeah. have the, the person in the room with you yeah. and everybody yeah. sitting around and, and so on. You know, so you're right, I think. Yeah. We and can even look that at is a multi-stage operation or, yes. or going yeah. to the undertakers or the body being moved yeah. or the ceremony in the church or the, you know, that the, the, there's a whole series of steps and processes yes. and that may be part of the process of grieving yeah. or, uh, you know, in prehistoric times it could be part of a more 
uh, mythological uh, or religious concept about the, mm -hmm. the processing or the transitioning of that person's spirit, for want yeah. of a better word, to, to, to other realms. Uh -huh. so there's all kinds of complexities there that we can only imagine. Perfect. The point is not that we will figure out those <laughs> things. No, it's that is that yeah. we have evidence to say that there was huge investment by this culture in mm. those kind of ideas. Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that we can show. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I think one of the really remarkable things about this project is it's a really good example of how different scientific techniques can give us incredible insights into, uh, you know, what is almost an unimaginably distant period. Um, in this case, the use of isotopic analysis and ancient DNA was, was a key component of the site. Larry, could you explain a little bit about how these techniques work? Um, you know, and, and what did the analysis reveal about the people that were, were buried within the tombs? Uh, can it give insights, for example, into where they came from, what they might have looked like? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, how, how does all of that side of it? So ancient genomic technology, um, yeah. sort of where we're at today, this is really new. This is happening uh, very quickly. Um, mm. We're able to uh, reconstruct whole genomes of ancient individuals now. So that contains so much information about an individual, mm. not just about their health, their their physical form, um, but also uh, about their ancestry, their wow. recent ancestry um, and also their more ancient ancestry because okay. your genome is simply a mosaic of all the people who came before you. Mm -hmm. um, so with Karakio, uh, I, I said before, having unburnt bone, brilliant, uh, mm. from megaliths. And uh, we had cranial fragments. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of the unburnt remains from the later period of use were skulls, which is also brilliant because uh, it's the petrous bone. Uh, in your inner ear, uh, that's uh, one of the best regions to extract ancient DNA from because it's so dense. It's like okay. rock. Um, so that's what we targeted. Mm. Um, and for our individuals, we got really good preservation rates. We tried two cremated individuals, got nothing there. Mm -hmm. um, but for our six uh, unburnt mm -hmm. uh, individuals, uh, we successfully got DNA from all of them. Um, I think four um to quite good I'm sorry I'm going on <laughs> um to quite good quality but one of the first things we wanted to know was were they related to each other I think this is one of the big questions yeah uh, people yeah. buried in these sites are they small familial groups are yeah. they which would suggest kingship or yeah. royal dynasties or something um, like that maybe if they're all related to each other and all yeah yeah maybe. definitely yeah. um so that was uh one of the things we were surprised to see no recent relatedness uh okay really um, interesting between the five individuals um that mm -hmm. we could um we could look at uh, this doesn't mean that there weren't king groups within these tombs like we've said before a minimum number of individuals yes okay um they've been used over long periods of time there mm -hmm. could be removal of remains over time too mm. but Obviously, the more individuals you sample, <laughs> yeah. the more likely you expect to hit on at least one. Uh, one relation. I yeah, think. especially something like fourth degree, because yeah. as you go for uh, up in the degrees, you'll have more and more fourth degree relatives than you have third degree relatives. Then you have second degree, obviously. It, okay. uh, first degree would be your parents, your siblings, your second degree grandparents, yeah. nieces. So mm -hmm. um, we saw none of that. Um, I suppose then what an ancient genome also allows you to do is kind of zoom out on a, on a bigger scale. And this is mm -hmm. what a lot of ancient DNA studies have been looking at in recent years is these big stories. Mm -hmm. uh, we know now 
Mm-hmm. Mesolithic Europe uh, was one particular uh, lineage type of ancestry, a okay. lot of continuity, and then you have agriculture happening mm-hmm. and a, a very divergent type of ancestry comes in from the region that's now Western Turkey. Okay. And this spreads throughout Europe, uh, mm-hmm. replacing a lot of the indigenous sort of hunter-gatherer ancestry and Ireland is very much a part of this phenomenon and the individuals mm. at Carrow at the very northwestern edge of this yeah. expansion are also part of that. So they can trace their origins right back to uh, Western Anatolia. Um, mm. And then we can also sort of look at middle ground things uh, mm. such as, right, they're coming ultimately from Anatolia, but which way yes. did they come? What routes um, uh-huh. did their ancestors take? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the Karakil individuals, uh, w- what we're seeing is something that's now being reported in a few studies uh, with other individuals from Atlantic Europe. You're seeing this sort of um, uh, affinity between mm-hmm. Atlantic Neolithic populations, um, okay. uh, particularly to Spanish earlier Neolithic. So we're starting to see potentially, um, I don't know, evidence of, of maritime connectivity along mm-hmm. these routes, which fits with the archaeological culture That's and the right, distribution yeah. of, of megaliths. And so that, it's almost um, like an, Atlant- an Atlantic culture to a, a degree seems to be appearing. Um, well, I mean, I, I, this isn't, but I suppose throughout the Neolithic, that connectivity sort of only strengthens, would you say? And then coming into the Bronze Age, mm-hmm. Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this is... Yeah. I think it's particularly strong from Iberia, from Portugal, mm-hmm. in Spain and Western France, and then up into Britain and Ireland, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and across into Scandinavia. And yeah. once you go further inland in Europe, you don't really find them. Yes. So there's yeah. a clear relationship there. And it's interesting, therefore, that individuals buried in passage tombs seem to also show that connection across the Atlantic yeah. seaboard. Yeah. I think that's, that's really striking. And <clears throat> we'll, we, I, I'm sure we'll be talking about the time periods, the dates of, of, of some of the remains mm-hmm. shortly. But uh, what, what's, what's important is that Karakil is not particularly close to the start of agriculture. Now, it's a few centuries yeah. afterwards, okay. but still we see those connections. Mm-hmm. Yes, very interesting. And what we now know and what ancient DNA has settled that, that debate more or less is that where did the Irish Neolithic come from mm-hmm. and how did it arrive? Mm-hmm. Was it hunter-gatherers that already lived in Ireland that... that acquired agriculture mm-hmm. or was it actually a, a, a migration event and now yeah. with ancient DNA it's, it's, it's settled that it was a migration event there were farming communities yeah. arriving on, on Irish shores but the a few centuries before it's still yeah. open though about yeah. the input of hunter-gatherers genetically uh-huh. not much mm-hmm. um, minimum contribution mm-hmm. majority this Anatolian ancestry mm-hmm. um, but how that actually played out within Ireland itself, how long hunter-gatherer groups persisted, mm-hmm. what they might have contributed to these farming groups, that's still open. Yeah, um, and how long... I, I think one of, the, one of the interesting things and one of the slight uh, dangers, perhaps, of ancient DNA in terms of how it's reported in the public, how it, uh, mm-hmm. how it comes out into the popular imagination, is that we'll be talking about, you know... Distant ancestry in some ways, uh, to Anatolia, and sometimes when it's reported, it comes out that, for example, we saw you know Turkish people built Stonehenge yeah. in their recent report and, and things yeah. like that. We are talking about quite a long period of time, aren't mm. we? It's not yeah. like an invasion of Turkish people turned up all at once. Mm. Um, would yeah. that be the case? Is that yeah, no, one hundred percent. These processes were yeah. slow moving through Europe. Took 
millennia yes. <laughs> before yeah. these people re- reached Ireland. So yes, all yeah. of these things would be. Yeah, I suppose one point is that the stable isotope mm. analysis mm. and the DNA, when that information is synthesized together, gives mm. you a sense of how a particular individual uh, lived their life and what the context of that, uh, in terms of you know the, the background mm. uh, geology of that yes. environment and the longer. Story and, yeah. and they're, they're often pretty different, isn't that? Isn't that yeah. fair point, uh, Thomas? Yeah, I mean, the isotopes, we should probably briefly mention them at least, yeah, in terms of that they tell a very different story in, 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 the, in, the, in relation to scale than ancient DNA does. Can, can I ask, how does the isotopic analysis work? What is it that it's being measured and, and how right. does it happen? So, we measured for a number of different isotopes and how it works best. Uh, on prehistoric remains is that you sample the dental enamel. Okay. For a very simple reason, like Alara mentioned about the, the petrous bone being so dense, mm. dental enamel is um, is extremely is extremely dense as well, extremely hard and resistant to change, even for okay. millennia of burial. And mm. and it's also the advantage with it is that once the teeth are formed, they are cut off from circulation, which is different from yeah, bones. Okay. Mm-hmm. That bones keep refreshing. Mm-hmm. Some large bones very slowly, ribs and smaller, less dense bones very quickly. Mm-hmm. So therefore, what you capture with with the teeth and the, the enamel in particular is where a person came from. Mm-hmm. So okay. once the teeth start growing, when they're about fourteen, fifteen, mm-hmm. the the isotopes don't change. They are trapped in there, and mm-hmm. therefore, if you analyze them five thousand years, seven thousand years, whatever later. Mm-hmm. you still have that record of where the person was born or spent their childhood while their teeth were growing. So it's measuring the, the isotopic um, measurement of the water, essentially. Is that what the water that they're drinking every day, that has a particular signature? Is that uh, right? Absolutely, that so it's a diet. So we measured yeah. for various yeah. different isotopes. I can, I can list them. So we mm-hmm. measured for carbon and nitrogen. We measured mm-hmm. for strontium and oxygen in particular. Okay. Okay. And the carbon-nitrogen tells us about the diet uh, and very broad brush strokes. Did Mm -hmm. people eat seafood, fish? Did they eat terrestrial food? Mm -hmm. Um, To some degree also, was it largely plant-based, largely meat-based? Yeah. And then the strontium and oxygen tell us more about the geology, the the region mm-hmm. and the, the environment that they, they, they grew up in. Okay. So these, the, and if you combine them, then you can get some very powerful insights into people's lives. And the mm-hmm. difference with DNA is you don't, you're, you're just looking at that individual. You can't look at their ancestry. Yes. So you, yeah. with, with isotopes, you only see where that, that particular person, person was, 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 was brought up. Yeah, and and not where where the ancestors came from, which is they complement each other quite nicely. Mm, yes, yeah. um, we didn't see any ancestral outliers in Karakil. All of them look typical Irish Neolithic, but it mm. would be interesting to say if you did identify somebody mm. who looked ancestrally from somewhere else, but isotopically looked like they grew up in the area, it might tell you if you're dealing with maybe parents yeah. who moved in, yeah. or. If you have both a DNA and isotopic outlier, that will tell you mm. something about the the question of immigration, immigration becomes yeah. a, a, a yeah. little more immediate then, exactly. doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. and I think yeah. isotopes have that power to give uh, very small windows of of mm. movement, while DNA you're looking at a bit of a bigger scale. Yeah, very um, interesting. So the isotopic results told us then that the people grew up just to still it. To the still, as expected, I guess the majority of yeah. of the individuals we sampled, which was about thirteen, fourteen, uh, 
appear to be relatively local. Okay. With some element of people from outside the immediate region being present. Okay. And one or two that could even one be, be there's there's hint that they might be from outside of Ireland. This right. is a, this okay. is tricky business because oxygen is the isotope to to use for that that which talks about climate which which looks at the rainfall. Okay. And and there there are therefore broad parameters and Ireland is quite yeah. a small region in in terms mm-hmm. of oxygen. Yeah. But it looks like that individual would have come from a more northerly climate. So farther okay. away from the sea, more continental or higher up. Mm-hmm. The Scottish Highlands would even be a possibility rather than... But it's unlikely based on the isotopes. And mm. the caveat with that is though that only very little work has been done in Ireland to compare mm. these samples. Mm-hmm. So as hopefully more of, of, of other samples come on, on, on the, the record, that we can compare and contrast and be more conclusive about mm. yes. places of origin. Yeah. We yeah. only have... a. A, a hundred odd samples across Ireland from all archaeology from strontium and, and oxygen mm-hmm. so it's a very small sample to compare things to same with the DNA yeah. you need to have the bigger picture and, and this yeah. is another challenge um, is mm. that isotopes tend to target the teeth yeah. ancient DNA analysis used to target teeth but uh, okay. we've moved on to the petrus okay. um, but ideally you'd like to link these two things to the same yeah. individual that's yes. when they're at their most powerful yes um, yeah. So for disarticulated assemblages where you can't link a yeah. cranial fragment to a mandible, then you're kind of uh, getting into a bit more difficult territory. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. on top of that, the perfect, I suppose, combination would be a date, isotopes and DNA, all from the exact same individual that you can then... Well, absolutely. And Robert? I mean, I think one, one thing to say is that what's starting to happen is that we're able to see the Neolithic... Um, with greater resolution mm. yeah. than we've ever yeah. done before. Yeah. And yeah. really, you know, people who've been looking at this period for a long time, the last three, four, five years, mm-hmm. you know, we've all had to incorporate very different narratives and, mm-hmm. you know, a huge shift in everybody's thinking. And we're all kind of remaking the story of the Neolithic. Mm. I mean, one thing you can say for sure is you're walking into a very different world when you contemplate the Neolithic yeah. and you really all of your baggage and all of your preconceptions you bring with you, mm-hmm. you need to eject them very fast because yeah. it, it, it is a different world. Well, that's it. And, and it, it's such an exciting time that we're really beginning to, to see the resolution, as you say, uh, as well on that. The, it, the people are coming into prehistory mm. a lot clearer uh, and, you know, being able to. And it's something the paper looked at. What did the people actually mm. look like? Mm. Even I think is a really interesting That's a discussion. Really cool there. thing yeah. about a genome. Yeah. yeah. Um, I said that earlier. You're a combination mm. of your mm. genes and your environment, but genes can tell us a lot, especially certain traits like pigmentation, mm-hmm. like your eye color, your skin color, your hair color. They mm-hmm. can be forensically predicted. A lot of the prediction systems. Um, that we use are were actually originally developed for forensics. Okay. Um. Yes, so what we see in Karakil, um, I should say uh, the Neolithic uh, of Ireland, they're, they're most simple, if you compare to modern day mm-hmm. populations, they're most similar to modern day Sardinians. Okay. Um, modern day Sardinia has managed to retain a lot of this European Neolithic ancestry. Um, oh, okay. It's been less affected by later oh, migrations. Migration. Yeah. Um, so our individuals in Karakil are kind of fitting of that profile uh, mm-hmm would likely have more sallow skin, mm-hmm. dark eyes, uh, mm-hmm. dark hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that we're seeing across Europe, uh, you can do some uh, predictions of height. 
Okay. Um, much more complex trait. Yes. Uh, lots and lots of genes involved, and there's environmental input your diet. Um, but it seems that stature-wise, Neolithic individuals uh, are genetically shorter okay. um, than populations and modern Europe, European populations in the north, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, which is cool as well, but uh, that's something that's ongoing and comparing that to the osteology, because we actually can have direct... Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you can test the hypothesis. Measures of height, yeah. 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 Um, and going forward, that, that's a whole really interesting idea in itself, that say if somebody is genetically meant to be tall but osteologically short then you might be talking about environmental stressors on yes. a population or dietary yeah. ones that mean they're not reaching their full genomic potential, <laughs> potential. Yeah, very um interesting okay. very much in its infancy though yes. um yeah. but uh what was the height range in Karakil? Five foot to five foot eleven from the osteologist? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Five eleven isn't bad. No, it is really interesting. And, and I, I think, as, as you say, the, uh, Robert, you know, when you look at that period of prehistory, it's so far back, in a sense, from us today in, in terms of its culture, in terms of just trying to get a sense of what they might have thought about. And they're creating these complex incredibly complex monuments that uh the monuments change so much as well throughout their own history that, that that's a slightly different subject but being able to to look at the the individuals we might not be able to get their motivations but it must be really interesting for for you and, and other prehistorians to kind of start to fit in some of the pieces into the jigsaw into at least what they might have looked like what, mm. the, what they might have been eating and i think that's what we're going to see more and more of so yeah. um you know, the idea of bringing together lots and lots of specialisations. Mm. I mean, we haven't even mentioned paleoenvironment. Mm. Yes. You know, so yeah. again, it was another part of the paper. Yeah. We're able to see distinct changes in the climate, downturns in the climate, mm-hmm. you know, how that affects, you know, um, building or, or lack of construction. Mm-hmm. Um, are there changes in the type of deposition? And we mm-hmm. seem to be seeing that in the, in the, uh, the, the later uh, mm-hmm. period at Karakil. Mm-hmm. Um so again, it's just another instance of you know a, a much more defined picture than we ever could have imagined mm. really a few years ago. It's, mm. it's yeah. and, and another element too is that we've talked a lot about human bones. Yes. But another part of it was the animal bone. Yes. Okay. And you know one thing that that's that emerges from the Karakil assemblage is the fact too that we have such a pattern in the Irish passagems uh, mm-hmm. tradition generally mm-hmm. of a very consistent set of objects that accompany the dead it's the nearest mm-hmm. thing we have to as to writing yeah. in terms of interpreting their intentions and their concerns and their priorities mm-hmm. and maybe even their cosmology yeah. so one of the things that crops up a lot are, are antler uh, mm-hmm. pins mm-hmm. and so the say for example a deer has one very significant then there are domesticated animals so mm-hmm. there's a whole set of future work to be done i think mm-hmm. with respect to the animal remains that are found mm-hmm. in those context uh, that's that's fascinating and I, I suppose it leads us on to one of the other the key forms of evidence when we're looking at these scientific techniques and that's the, the dating of, of the site and the dating of the remains uh, thomas perhaps um do you want to to discuss uh, the what the results of this project told yes us about? Uh, I, and the key is directly in line with what what, what everybody else has just been saying mm. is that we can start when we have a, a number of, of, of dates then start pulling together different types of evidence and how mm. they 
they relate to the chronology. So building that chronology is obviously vital and is, is the first thing most archaeologists are interested in. Mm-hmm. So what we have been able to do is, is add more or less 40 new um, radiocarbon measurements to not just the Karakil story, which there was virtually none before, a very small number, to recently that 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 the the previous project that Robert Porrig and Sam were involved in contributed. But but from before, there was only a handful of dates from Karakil, but also from Irish passage tombs, the number of, of radiocarbon dates has been very limited before. Yeah. So therefore, having these extra 40 dates makes a real difference in how we can... Uh, assess and model the chronology and and we won't go into detail about Bayesian modeling but that's mm-hmm. the, the main approach nowadays it's large statistical sampling of dates yes. and and then and then modeling modeling things according to those so we have these 40 dates and the story in simple terms the story they tell about the history of the complex mm-hmm. is interesting already that we have an early start for Karakil, not as early as Karamore, which is just 20 kilometers up the road that, that mm-hmm. uh, Robert has already mentioned, but not much later either. Okay. So there's an overlap in, in, in time periods and distinctly earlier than any of the recent uh, research from, for example, the Boyne Valley and other passage tombs in Ireland has suggested. Okay. But the suggestion is that passage tombs start in the last quarter, the last third of the fourth millennium BC, so mm-hmm. around 3,300, 3,200 BC. Whereas in Karakil, we know we have earlier dates. We know Karakil has been in use mm-hmm. and the tombs were built, at least some of them, mm-hmm. and depositions happened before 3,400 BC, maybe mm-hmm. as early as 3,500, 3,600 BC. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's important. Yes. And also the period of use is very important because, again, another perception was passage tombs start late and finish early so that there's mm-hmm. a quite a tight chronology mm-hmm. um they, they are out of use by the end of the what we call the middle neolithic about 2900 bc mm-hmm. and again in karakil we have the sequence continuing right until the end of the neolithic period to yeah. about 2500 bc when that when the, the bronze age starts so we have a, a much longer sequence but also as robert again mentioned there are changes over time yes. which, which is then the, this next level so overall the big picture is it seems to start quite early, following on quite neatly from Karamore, which mm-hmm. is interesting in its own right, mm-hmm. the relationship between these northwestern complexes, yeah. and continuing right till the end of the Neolithic, but then seems to almost stop. And there are a few Bronze Age insertions in some of the tombs, yeah. but okay. interestingly, we, ra- we almost random sampled those remains, and we expected to find some early Bronze Age, we found we didn't, right. which is surprising okay. in itself. Yeah. So yeah. all the samples were essentially middle to late Neolithic. Very which, is, which is very interesting. Yeah. And it's one of those examples as well that, you know, it, it really sets the bar for further research to be done around the country. I know we're beginning to see tantalising glimpses in the Dublin and Wicklow Mountains oh. that there's some early dates coming out oh. of there. Now, I, I don't count the Hellfire project as being fully dated because we only got three very small dates. It's a very surgical thing. But they, they, again, were quite early in and around that kind of 3,500 mark. Uh, Bolting Glass was in and around that, mm-hmm. and there was a hill fort dated nearby to Bolton Glass, mm-hmm. uh, which also came in and around that. So we're looking at something interesting happening in and around that window between 3,600 BC maybe to 3,400, oh. that perhaps that's this, whether it's the arrival of a culture or, or something like that beginning to, to take shape. And, and that's after you see a decrease in agricultural intensity, yes. which is... Okay, really interesting. Mm. Yeah. That's a really curious thing. So you have an inverse relationship. You know, yeah, you so, do. so the increase yeah. in construction of passage tombs, mm-hmm. you know, the scale and sophistication of passage tombs, mm-hmm. 
um, is in an environment where the climate is deteriorating, mm-hmm. you know, the, there would certainly be more bad harvests. It yes. would be, uh, survival would become that bit more precarious and difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and yet these communities associated with passage tombs are investing, you know, huge, huge resources yeah. and time into these, uh, you know, structures and burials and possibly religious ritual. Mm. Yeah, and you wonder whether that's, um, is that giving us a, a, a you know, it, it's very hard to, to put motivation in mind, mm. whether it's such a different culture, but it makes you think perhaps they were doing it in a way to appease the gods <laughs> or, or something along those lines. If, if life was taking a very big downturn for them, Maybe they thought we will, you know, ethnographically. Invest. What do you see if a community can't control its environment or is feeling in a bit of a rough patch? You, I don't know. That's something that's reoccurrent, isn't it? That we might. Did we see that with the in the Yucatan Peninsula, for example, or was it with the the Aztecs that as things were going particularly badly for them, mm. the the religious aspect. Mm. accelerated to, to quite high. Yeah. It's an interesting... It is. If you wanted to follow that metaphor further, you could say that in Ireland in the middle 19th century, mm-hmm. during the time of the famine, at the absolute lowest point mm-hmm. as regards you know, the condition for people was when they built the biggest churches. That's very true. Mm. That's very true. Or, like, you know, there's a tendency to sort of impose our own logic on on these situations. Mm. They have a very utilitarian or economic logic. I mean, I could think of one ethnographic example whereby uh, these particular traditional peoples were given money to buy fertilizers to increase their their yields mm-hmm. and their crops. Mm-hmm. So they thought, what do we do? Well, we get the money, we buy bags of cement, we'll do up all our tombs, that will keep the ancestors happy. Crop sorted. Yes. You know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we can, you know, very different logics than we imagine. But that's mm-hmm. it. That's it. Motivation is always a sticky thing to try to. Just assume they're as rational as we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know that we're that rational. <laughs> <laughs> They had it right all along. Um, I, I get you know looking at this very multidisciplinary way where there's so many different skill sets that's come into this, and it it's really created a tremendous amount of information and a really, um, as you said earlier, it really brings the site into resolution. But were the practical challenges, were were the interpretational challenges, with everybody having their own particular aspects and lenses? How how did it work as a group? How did it kind of function? There because you're quite geographically meetups. spread. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of fun yeah. meetups in the Gresham. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we'd have to coordinate, wouldn't we, and try to pick a time where everybody was free, everybody could get somewhere. Yes. Um, yeah. And then we'd just sit down and trash it out for a few hours usually that's mm-hmm. gonna have it yeah i think the structural challenges were obviously present johnny had mm. right at the start of the project accepted a job in new zealand so uh-huh. he went to the oh, other wow. side of the globe <laughs> okay. he's fortunately back in europe now he's in edinburgh now <laughs> but and but even within ireland then um with Podrick, sam and robert in the northwest yep. lara in dublin i'm based in london um so there was a lot of of coordinating to get us together but the getting together was vital. Yes. Mm. Yeah. The discussion moved forward yeah. exponentially because we had these three, four hours meetings roughly every half year, twice a year in the yeah. Gresham Hotel where we really restated the questions and, and made yeah. sure that we were all on the same page yeah. and we could we could argue our differences. Obviously then these arguments 
conversations continued via via, via email and so on subsequently. Yeah. But I think having these face to face get togethers was yeah. vital for for making the project happen. Oh yeah, uh, and 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 the different perspectives. Yes, they play a part. There's mm-hmm. different different. Um, outlooks that an osteologist compared to a geneticist compared mm-hmm. to a landscape archaeologist would yeah. have but I think the coming together is more important than the different perspectives and yes. and being able to pull these different elements together uh, as I mentioned with the dates so that we have a backbone of, of, of the radiocarbon dates mm-hmm. and then everything else we can sort of hang off that to some degree which is really nice so that the, the ancient DNA the these samples are dated, the isotope samples are dated, mm-hmm. the cut mark samples where we could get a date are dated. So therefore we can we can relate cut marks to cremation. We can say that they are contemporary. Mm, yeah. We can we can we can then look at the sequence of change in the in the in the depositions of, of burials across the board. We can look at the animal remains, in particular the antlers that mm-hmm. Porrick mentioned, which seem to be very early in the sequence. But, yeah. And 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 then the DNA with, with, with some one of them a really late sample being a very interesting sample. So so we, we can really, we have that backbone and then all the other methods kind of stitch in there. And yes. I think that's the real strength of, of the project. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a brilliant example of that. It, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think it is. Um, and even with just the ancient DNA, it's so new and Caracil was mm. a really ambitious uh, project to try and integrate this in. Mm-hmm. Um, and an example, I think of like what's, to come and how the whole field is going to progress we need to get more and more cross-disciplinary uh, absolutely um, i think it, the the project creates a great model for that and yeah. the, the, it's very rare that you'd get the perfect set of circumstances that everybody's within the one institution you know <laughs> I, I think these days just with the nature mm-hmm. of, of the different types of skills and, and things like that mm-hmm. that are needed you know you've created a really good model from that and, Looking forward, I suppose, you know, archaeology very rarely gives you a straight answer. It gives you better questions most of the time if you're lucky. But what kind of questions do you think the results of this project now uh, pose for Passage Tomb Studies in Ireland uh, and overseas? Perhaps we'll go to you, Robert, first, and, and Porrick, and we'll move along there. What what kind of questions do you think you'd like to know about other sites that, that this project kind of ha- has told you? I, do, I mean, it's a very difficult question to answer, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I was thinking about it a little bit on on the way down, mm-hmm. and I mean, one thing I'd say, you know, the initial work that was done, you know, finding the materials in Duckworth, mm-hmm. you know, examining all the previous work that had been done at the site and the paper record, going back to the excavation reports, mm-hmm. uh, and bringing that all information together is something actually that could be done at many sites around ar- many sites around Ireland or even okay. around Europe. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a testament to what could be done if just with a little, you know, time and energy yes. uh, put into a site. And, and then, of course, from that, you, you set the agenda uh-huh. of it becomes clearer. Yeah. These analyses clearly need to be done and, mm-hmm. and you can say why, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's something that's applicable uh, to, to many other sites and situations. Mm-hmm. As we said already, I think more and more we're going to see the coming together of different specialisations mm-hmm. uh, and... Um, you know that's going to become necessary. Yes. Um. You know. So are we going to see people with DNA specialization and specialized equipment on site at excavations? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we don't know what what the future holds, but but yeah. the, what we consider to be archaeology might look very different in fifty years. Uh-huh. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Just like it looked very different a hundred years ago, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Another point is that what we've been doing is going to an old collection. Yeah. So so we didn't, we never dug in the, in Carrowkeel at all. Mm-hmm. So that that was a piece of archaeology and a piece of research that, you know, went back to me. So there must be a huge, vast resource of 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 information mm-hmm. still inside museum collections that's mm, yet that's to be harvested. Point. Um, and, and would it be fair to say that a lot of the uh, the past tombs in Ireland, at least as well, because of the nature of the monuments, because they are so enigmatic and interesting, mm. that they tended to be monuments that were excavated in the early years of archaeology, if you like, in the first kind of... Some were. Some have, some have yet to be even opened. We have oh, a, yeah. The west well, of Ireland is yeah. remarkable in that we, we live in the shadow of Knock and yes. there are a, a whole vast... I mean... What, 10 or 11 big passage tombs that are still closed yes, yes absolutely and, and if yeah. if we if, if you can imagine Newgrange still mm. closed well we have a couple of versions of that standing <laughs> yeah. around in the hills where we are so yeah. that sense of potency and of a limited resource mm. that still promises so much to learn and yeah. how little we know in ways for example dna from france might mm. hugely fill in some of the gaps i, I assume i think yeah. um it's really, one site done really well recontextualizes everything. So there's yes. like a trade off between going for new sites and mm-hmm. really, uh, really squeezing everything out of what you have. But in, in terms of the genetics, Caracule will be reinterpreted again and again as the ancient genomic data set builds up across Europe. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And as more passage to sites get excavated, not just in Ireland or reanalyzed. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And, and interestingly, there is a, a, a recent study from, from Sweden that just came out that mm, essentially yeah. focuses on court tombs, a couple yeah. in Ireland, including, uh, and, and, uh, including the central tomb in Caramore, and almost directly contradicts our finding from Karakil in terms of the, the, the levels of kinship. They okay. show direct relationship within. Okay. The, so that, that's a really interesting, that poses interesting questions. If, obviously, they are not representative. Yeah. But that we find a passage tomb complex because we find no evidence for kinship. Uh-huh. Then they they look at the court tomb complex and they find relationships. Yes. Okay. Um, and and so so that 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 that's really it's interesting. A warning to... against making big generalizations because <laughs> obviously it's a complex thing and it, different it, it, sites it might be used exactly. for different reasons and different groups different times. So well, well that's it. And, and you know, I, I think one of the the really interesting potential outcomes you'd love to see with this. I mean, the the passage tomb study in itself is fascinating, but in Ireland we also have a number of other megalithic tomb types, mm. and it'd be really interesting to apply these same techniques to court tombs, portal tombs. Yeah, we have uh, been. Well, they <laughs> have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, that coming soon. That's the project. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what Caracul is oh, a part of, good. which okay. is really exciting. Yes, uh, that yeah. that is our sort of next study is placing Caracul within within the, the bigger Irish Neolithic ah, okay, context okay. and all these other sites. That's fascinating. Um, isn't so it? watch this space. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Caracul has become a real central site oh. in that. Yeah. And the one other big question that Caracul and we wanted to deal with it, but the the paper was getting just getting too big. Yeah. Um. So we couldn't have done it justice, and the, and and the timing. Uh, we, we wanted to get it written and published so mm. we can start this conversation. Mm-hmm. But the animal remains that Porig uh, already mentioned. Yeah. They are key to the question as well. And we can only do so much. We mentioned them. We have a section. Johnny mm-hmm. analysed them. But there's so much more on the role of animals in the Irish Neolithic. In particular, yeah. red deer is a really mm-hmm. important question because we still don't quite know when and how it arrived in Ireland. We yes. know it wasn't there in the Mesolithic. Yes. It's there in the Neolithic and yeah. very prominently so. But other animals as well. And 
not just for their own sake, but understanding that relationship between humans and animals is, is a really important one. Yes. And, and this is another right. element. So some of the really big questions that Karakil posed at the end of it was, what's going on with the animals and yeah. and yeah. what would we need to do? What would you like to do? So there, there are plenty of ideas for follow-on projects mm, of, 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 of thinking more about, about these animal remains and, and how they fit the picture and what else they tell us about life in Neolithic Ireland. Mm-hmm. That's, that's fantastic. It, it really is. And, and if somebody wanted to find out more about your project, where can they, they find the paper or is there any way that you'd like to direct them? Well, the the... the paper is published by the PPS and mm. so you know you'll find all information uh, on it all, online I mean mm. if you do a search for any of the people here on, on Google I'm sure you'll get all kinds of interesting <laughs> things unexpected <laughs> 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 things pop up you know. um, we'll put links yeah. to things in the, the show notes yeah. on the sure, website yeah. as well yeah. so yeah. that yeah. people will be able to find them but I think this is uh, such an interesting project uh, and there's so many kind of different new ways that we can now have from the results of your work to look at people mm. in, in a period that is you know beforehand it was very hard to put the, the people actually into mm. it you know we had the spectacular monuments for sure mm. but it was hard to imagine what they were like and i think that your work has done terrific uh, yeah one, one little thing that struck in my mind a lot mm. was we looked up when robert and sam went initially to look at the bones in duckworth they mm. took their, some photographs there mm. and they took photographs of alexander McAllister's notes and mm-hmm. of course the bones as well mm-hmm. and when you start to look through his notes and you see his mm-hmm. thought process and you see his yeah. careful beautiful mm-hmm. handwriting mm-hmm. and in one part he starts to talk about the squatting Mm-hmm. facet uh, which is a, a, par- a particular part of your foot bone that if you live a life of, of, of squatting mm-hmm. it leaves a signature and then okay. when Johnny went back to reanalyze mm. the bones he, he confirmed if you like yeah. that right. so it, it for me anyway it yeah. gave me a picture of of, of a way of no chairs in that mm. world yeah. everybody yeah. squatted the fire where you worked where you where you lived it was just a little other image yes. of yeah. a life yeah. lived that's, by real people that's and that's really what you really just get little flashes and images yeah, that's and it. together they piece absolutely it relates to what Robert said that life was very different in Neolithic yeah. Ireland and yeah. Johnny was very was his pains to point out the squatting isn't a big deal it's not a big deal for an osteologist working yeah. on these assemblages but if you compare it to the present day so it's very common that's what he meant by not a big yeah. deal because there were no chairs until essentially the 18th century yes you know yeah, yeah, so but yeah. people so people in the much more recent past have been squatting much more than we do but it's, mm-hmm. it's helping us to actually think about some of those differences how different life looked on a, on a day-to-day basis we all yes. hear five of us sitting in chairs <laughs> yes um yeah. so so i think that's really interesting that yes so people the everyday humdrum activities yeah of preparing food of of, of sleeping even of mm. you know, no they looked very different to what what we call the same the same things nowadays and, mm. and that's that's really important to to kind of really really try and dispose of all that baggage that we have that yeah uh yeah. That what we do is essentially what people then would have done. It looked very different. I, I think it's wonderful that the projects are able to give you these glimpses as well. When you think about these great tombs and so on, your mind immediately fixes towards the religion, the spirituality, the monumental nature of it. But those glimpses of everyday life, I think, uh, are perhaps in a way a, a little more insightful. You know, they they give you a real picture of life in Neolithic Ireland. Thank you so much for being with us today. I think it's uh, really fascinating. 
And that's all for this edition of Amplify Archaeology. I really enjoyed recording this chat and I want to thank Thomas, Lara, Robert, Porrick, as well as Sam and Johnny, the other team members who unfortunately couldn't join us today. I want to thank Declan Lonergan and Bluebird Studios for all their excellence and hospitality in helping us to record this session. You can find show notes and links to the paper along with some images on our website at abartaheritage.ie and there you'll find all the previous episodes of Amplify Archaeology. If you get the opportunity and you have the inclination, please do leave us a review on the podcast and more importantly, tell a friend. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye-bye.